BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Let me just be very, very clear about what's going on on the right. There is this theory based on a book called Camp of the Saints that is widely read across people on the hard right, the racist hard right. And it's called the the Great Replacement Theory. And the idea is that white people are being replaced in the United States and across Western nations. This book was actually originally written in French and published in France. The edition in the United States is an American translation. And that this is an intentional act to, quote, destroy Western civilization, which means white Christian civilization, and replace it with brown and Muslim and you know and and you know black and, and whatever right just it's not white people and this is why the guys were chanting in charlottesville you will not replace us and what he was saying is that you know you or what they were saying was you as a culture and then they then then the next chant was jews will not replace us and that was a specific reference to george soros because part of the great replacement theory is that George Soros, being a Jewish billionaire who funds pro-democracy projects around the world, that he was like one of the, the grand wizards, one of the grand leaders of the great replacement project to do away with white people. And Trump was like, oh, they're very, you know, they're very fine people and they've got a point. And, and basically, you know, Donald Trump and his followers are all in on the Great Replacement Theory. So with that in mind, listen to what Tucker Carlson said on Fox so-called news. Quote, the people, and by the way, you can read this at MediaMatters.org. The people who made the Afghan occupation possible would like to see a lot more of our southern border, much more unrestrained immigration to the U.S. Bring in the refugees, they're screaming, tonight! That's the only lesson they're taking from this debacle. There's lots of time to spare as Americans die of fentanyl ODs and millions of foreign nationals whose identities we can't confirm moved here. But when it comes to bringing Afghans to our country, there's no time to spare. And then he goes on. He says, so we're getting it. And if history is any guide, and it's always a guide, we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood, and over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade, and then we are invaded. In other words, brown people, people who are not necessarily Christian, but in particular, they're not white people, are coming to America, and they're going to replace us. This is just, you know, astonishing. So, anyway, your thoughts on this Israel in Chandler, Arizona. Hey, Israel, what's up? Morning, Tom. Uh, I've been consuming the news just as you and everybody else over the last few days and everything. And one of the things that I always like to do is just kind of, once I've consumed in what's going on in these two days, is start drawing a line going backwards and, and see how this ties to other things. And I think you've talked a lot about that in terms of going back to 9-11, our reaction to that and what we did in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Once in a while, I like to take what I call a 30,000-foot view. And I think that all of this goes all the way back to the beginning of this country. 
Number one, the ink wasn't dry on our Constitution when we were already behaving like an empire, pushing West, pushing Native uh, populations out, massacring them. Um, and, and, and that has continued on and on and on. And there are very, very few instances where we really needed to go to war. Pearl Harbor is one indication for me. But most of the times, and especially in our lifetime, I can't think of a single war that we have gone to that we needed to for the security of our country. And I think that until we come to terms with the fact that we've been behaving like an empire, well, as long as we continue to do that, our democracy is in peril. One well, thing is tied to another in my mind. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you, Israel. I would fine tune it a little bit and maybe even take it a step farther than what you're saying. Um, because the great lesson, if you look at how, for example, the, the British Empire functioned from the 1700s to the, to the mid 20th century, or how the, you know, for that matter, how the French or the Dutch or the Portuguese empires functioned when they were empires, or the Roman Empire, for that matter. Yes, they would invade other countries, but they would very quickly create essentially collaborative agreements with those countries. We will build roads in India, the British said. If in exchange, you will pick cotton and send the cotton to England to be made into clothing. They integrated their economies with the countries that they had conquered. The countries adopted their language. When I worked in Uganda, people were no longer speaking Bantu. They were speaking English, right? It was an English colony. The same in India, you know, there's, there's over 700 languages in India, but the dominant one is English because it was dominated by, by the United Kingdom for so long. So, you know, even the countries that have behaved as empires historically have not done it as stupidly as we did in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And, Correct, and, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, uh, A, just being an empire is really out of fashion. I mean, it just in the 21st century, it doesn't work. It hasn't, it, and frankly, I don't think it worked in the 20th century. This is stuff that should have been left behind in the 19th century and before. And frankly, I mean, you could argue very strongly it never should have happened at all. But, yes. but for all practical purposes, it's just like not even possible anymore. Yeah. And then we get to these definitional things. You know, what does, what is a, an act of war? What does war mean? Why are we engaged in military conflicts without a congressional declaration of war? The last one we had was World War II, and we've been involved in all kinds of these things. Another guy, I, I, I need to go back and edit my op-ed from yesterday. Another time we relied into war was Ronald Reagan in Grenada. I mean, that war lasted, what, two days? But, you know, <laughs> it, it was like Reagan said, oh, my God, you know, they're coming for the students, the American students at the medical school in Grenada. Who is they? Well, it was, you know, uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name now, but, the, you know, the president of that country, Grenada, was like, uh, you know, we're going to have a national health care system for everybody in the country, and we're going to institute national unionization. And, and, and Reagan said, that's communism. You can't have that. That's what he was trying to yeah. save the students from. And yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's like, we, we just, we, this is nuts. Anyhow, Israel. Yeah, I uh, think if. If I could just one quick thought, I think how we come to terms with with our history and how that determines us moving forward will go a long way towards whether or not we are a Britain, meaning we realize we can't control this empire and establish a relationship, as as you've indicated, with the countries, with other countries around the world, or we disappear like the Roman Empire did, overcome by uh, peoples from, from other lands. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, it, we, th- those are the choices before us. It's I think you're absolutely right. And, and let us not forget that when the Roman Empire collapsed, it was bloody. It was horrible. It lasted generations. It was a god-awful mess. And we don't want it that was. here. Israel, thank absolutely. you for the call. Very, very well said. Robert in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Robert, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I remembered from day one when you spoke about this being a police action, and that was the same point of view that I had. But You're talking about back in 2003 when I first went on the air on this? Yes, and also 2001 when the station was located somewhere else. Oh, was I wasn't on the air in 2001, but I was writing op-eds about it, mostly for CommonDreams.org. Yeah, it was a it was a criminal act by a group of, uh, by, by, by radical militia and so yep. forth. And I thought that war was too uh, ennobling of a thing to declare on them. Yep. And the thing that I realized that was going on was the the hatred, especially the hatred for people that are quote not us that that attacked us, right. and 
we wanted vengeance. We didn't care. And uh, we felt humiliated and so forth. And uh, we, we got into a situation because we have... We know that there's a lot of hatred for those people, quote, others or whatever. And it would be easy to shed their blood to make us look good or to save face. And we went into this thing and we can't we can't look at how racism drives American foreign policy. Right. I mean, all across the world, because and we haven't forever. done and, and, and it continues to. And unfortunately, it it's put us in this position. We're not going to change their gods. We're not going to change their beliefs. We're not going to change anything. Okay, they don't want it. Right. They reject it. They have their culture and so forth, and we should have known better. Yeah. And like you said, it should be called an occupation. Yeah, well, it has Never been an well. occupation. I mean, when Bush declared mission, uh, mission accomplished, he was right. The war was over. It had turned into an occupation, into a 20-year occupation, or in the case of Iraq, an 18-year occupation. But he, yeah. Robert, right on the point. Thank you very much. Very well said. Picking up your thoughts on this. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The war was over in a month in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We are ending a 20-year occupation. Bill in Sun City, Arizona. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. Says here you say 9-11 didn't actually happen. It was a film. Well, think about it, Tom. Let's freeze frame here for a second. One second before the airplane struck the building. Okay. I thought you said now the airplanes didn't strike the buildings. Well, the supposed airplane okay. struck the building. So my friend, my friend Jerry, who lives in New York City and saw all this happen, he was hallucinating? Perhaps I've known him since since the early seventies. He's my best friend. I um, you know I believe him. You know, the amount of time that you know somebody doesn't. Okay, so Bill, what happened? What happened if the planes didn't strike the buildings? Okay, the nose cone struck the building. The softest part of that airplane struck steel reinforced concrete, concrete steel rod reinforced concrete, and the and the supporting upright beams alongside it. What you saw wasn't the airplane striking the building. What you saw was the building absorbing the airplane. Should an airplane strike a building, an airplane struck the, the Empire State Building, they picked it up on the streets and avenues below. Should an airplane Oh, Bill, that's an entirely semantic argument. How is that, Tom? I'm talking about the You're, you're, you're arguing about, about the meaning of the word struck. That's semantics. What else did it do? Well, I don't well, disagree it, with it, you that it, the building it, it, absorbed the plane, but, you know, it, it still well, I'm happened. I'm telling you what the film showed you. I'm not saying the building absorbed the plane. I'm saying what the film showed you. The discrepancy is in the film. As a matter of fact, there's a large number of discrepancies in the film. When a nose cone strikes a, a bird in flight, the nose cone bursts into, into pieces. That nose cone, not only did it strike the outside of that building, there's a part of the film that shows it coming through intact on the other side. What you saw was computer graphics imaging. Yeah. Not, it, it Bill, left I am not, I'm not buying it, and I'm moving along. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's just, I mean, there are limits. Carol, in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I have no response to what your previous caller said right. at all. Um, I'm calling about, I'm, I'm rather angry about some of our press coverage, which is covering the um leaving of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Some of them are saying that, uh, and this isn't just Fox noise, so this is the ones you and I normally watch, are saying that, well, we shouldn't have left because now our allies are going to say that we abandon our allies, and all across the world now our allies are going to say we abandoned them. And I think that's absurd. I mean, when was uh, Afghanistan ever our ally to start with? Exactly. And secondly, this phony occupation for 20 years, 
all they did during that occupation, all they did was try to kill us to get us to leave. Right. And name and one finally, ally that we're occupying right now. I mean, yes, we have bases in Germany and Japan, but we're not occupying those countries. We're not running their governments. We're not telling them, you know, how to do things. We're not providing, you know, substantial. We're not providing any actually security for Germany or or Japan. Those are those are simply, you know, uh, collaborative international military efforts in the event of international conflict. Right. And and also they're not trying to kill us to get us to leave. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're you're right, Carol. It's a complete BS argument and it's astonishing that the the media is carrying it. I saw John Bolton come on CNN and at that point I got up and turned off the TV and went and took a shower. I mean, it's like, oh my god. I mean, literally took a shower. Carol, thank you for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. I appreciate it. Scott in Portland. Hey, Scott, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's up? Hey, thanks, Tom. Your caller, Bill, I think it was, was mm-hmm. the thing about the building absorbing the airplane. I guess if we watch, go back and watch the old uh, Zabgruder films, what we're actually seeing is JFK's body absorbing the bullets. Exactly. That's why I said it's just semantics. You know, you know this. Although yeah, I, I'm absolutely. arguing semantics today in my definitions of war and occupation, so so I can't just like ridicule semantics, but uh, nonetheless, sure, yeah. well. Well, I, th- I think that if all these countries we're talking about, the, the you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say Afghanistan, the Afghans could have very well have been marching in the streets saying uh, Americans will not replace us. Yeah, you know, well, so they were. That, for 20 years. Right. Oh, we, we did. We did. We had them <laughs> under our boot. And then yeah. all that money. I was just going back and rereading some of the, uh, the, the, the Senate hearings, the, the House hearings, uh, when oh, about oh, in 14. And there were, it was all the same people, cast carriers, Jim Jordan and all these guys, Devin Nunes, and they're all just hammering on how much this is costing and, and building up this embassy with all this concrete and all this office furniture and stuff. And then we just walk away from it. Right. You know, it's just, it's so, it's, it's so sad. But yeah, the hypocrisy on the right is just stunning. And uh, I don't know how we can ever get around it. I don't, I don't see that we can. I think we've got, you know, we, we have to tell the truth, Scott. That's, the, you know, that's, yes. that's my big appeal with this program and with these pieces that I've been writing is that we start to tell the truth about who we are. I mean, this is the whole argument around critical race theory, too. You know, you've got a right wing that doesn't want America to tell the truth about its past and now doesn't want America to tell the truth about its present. And I think Absolutely. that the best way that you avoid making a mistake in the future is acknowledging the mistake in the past. Scott, thank you. I've got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Michael in Birmingham, Alabama. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi, hi, Tom. Uh, First-time caller. I'm addicted to your show. Thank you. Nice to hear from Um, you. What's on your mind? um, I was listening to Joe Biden, whom I voted for, and I was thoroughly embarrassed and ashamed. I'm a veteran. Um, I served in the uh, military three years. I did um, a tour in uh, Afghanistan. But uh, Biden took um, a page out of Trump's notebook. He changed the narrative. We weren't uh, upset. The people were not upset because he um, pulled out. They were upset because the way, the evacuation, it was botched. I know, and he completely avoided uh, discussing that. And uh, afterwards, uh, numerous commentators pointed that out. Right-wingers are going after him for it. Um, He's going to have to clean that up. Yeah, he didn't. He, he, he blamed everybody except himself. Yeah. And can I share a, a story with you? We have 30 seconds, Michael, until we hit a break. Okay. Go for I it. Was stationed in I was stationed in, in Jalalabad, <laughs> and we were working on aircraft. And adjacent to us was the uh, Afghani aircraft. And we were told that not to share water in 115-degree weather, not to share water with the, uh, the local nationals because their government would supply them. They had no water, and we were out there amongst each other. One one of the Afghans came up came over to me, and uh, he signaled to me that he was thirsty. And I was told by my superiors not to give him water. What do you think I did? Did you give him the water? I, gave him water. I did. I yeah, gave him good on you, Michael. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. yeah, Michael, I'm sorry we're we're hitting the break here, and I got I've got to wrap it up. But uh, thank you for being a first time caller. Thanks for the call. I hope we can talk again in the future. Thank you very much. And thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Hey, it's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Our book today is From Slave Ship to Supermax, Mass Incarceration, Prisoner Abuse, and the New Neo-Slave Model by Patrick Elliott Alexander. This is Chapter 1, Talking in George Jackson's Shadow is the title, If Beale Street Could Talk. Prison preoccupied the literary imagination of James Baldwin. Yet his biographer David Leeming is one of the few to notice that prisons and prisoners were a significant part of Baldwin's own personal experience. Even the most cursory glance at Baldwin's published works and interviews bear out Leeming's important observation. In his essay, Equal in Paris, 1955, Baldwin reveals that during his time in France, he was, quote, arrested as a receiver of stolen goods and spent eight days in prison. While confined, Baldwin witnessed with great shock another incarcerated man's bleeding and wounding go unattended intentionally by prison staff. In his longer essay, No Name on the Street, 1972, Baldwin reflects on frequent prison visits that he made to his friend Tony Maynard, a black man who suffered violent treatment from guards after he was falsely accused with the murder of a white U.S. Marine. Baldwin's advocacy for black political prisoners in particular deeply informed his writings and public addresses throughout the 1970s and included actions such as aiding in the release of imprisoned Black Panther Party co-founders Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. In 1970, Baldwin was so outraged by the appearance of Angela Davis, the black revolutionary and advocate for political prisoners in handcuffs and mock mugshot posture on the cover of Newsweek magazine, that he published an open letter to the New York Review of Books in which he deemed her jailing a continuation of slavery and a foreshadowing of a radicalized epidemic of mass incarceration at one and at the same time. Quote, only a handful of the millions of people in this vast place are unaware that the fate intended for you, Sister Angela, and for the numberless prisoners in our concentration camps, for that is what they are, is a fate which is about to engulf them too, end quote. When Baldwin spoke out about racism in the criminal justice system in the Dick Cavett Show in 1973, he won widespread admiration among imprisoned black communities, receiving, quote, so many letters from them that he determined to arrange a Christmas version of his musical drama, The Hallelujah Chorus, that would tour American prisons. Finally, in 1982, Baldwin published a letter in which he insisted that artists and prisoners have more in common with one another than have servants of the state. Baldwin was a stranger neither to witnessing nor to writing about prisons and prisoner abuse. Yet Baldwin's oeuvre had not been examined extensively in the context of his engagements with the literature and life experiences of imprisoned men and women. This chapter focuses on Baldwin's understanding of prisoner abuse and police intimidation as interrelated, radicalized social control functions of the contemporary U.S. carceral state and pays careful attention to how his historicizing of radicalized state violence in fiction is shaped by his admiring engagement with the writings of imprisoned intellectuals. Baldwin, I contend, alludes to the human chattel conditioning, disciplinary violence, and economic exploitation that typified the institution of slavery in his black liberation movement, era short stories, and novels, to situate his black working class characters' subjection to racial profiling, police brutality, wrongful incarceration, indefinite solitary confinement, prisoner abuse, and premature death in racialized historical context. Focusing mostly on Baldwin's novel If Beale Street Could Talk, 1974, this chapter explores how Baldwin, inspired by the narrative techniques of the imprisoned intellectual George Jackson, links a repressive logic of racial terror from the era of antebellum slavery with the state's practice of white supremacist social control into the contemporary criminal justice system. 
I argue that by incorporating Baldwin's conception of neo-slavery into the elusive framework for Beale Street, Baldwin elucidates the predictability, rather than the aberrant nature, of black men's hypercriminalization, incarceration, and brutalization by the state. Beale Street thus exemplifies well what I theorized in the introduction as a neo-abolitionist novel. With this work, Baldwin becomes the first canonical African-American writer to construct a conceptual model of the prison industrial complex in fiction that privileges the narrative viewpoint of its captives while also making apparent slavery's vestiges in the contemporary U.S. criminal justice system. My point of departure for this chapter is Baldwin's career-length consideration of racial terror as a state-sanctioned social control function of both pre- and post-slavery American life, and the relationship of this instrumentalist terror to blacks' recurring encounters with state violence in the late 20th and 21st centuries. This contextualization establishes a broader framework within which my reading of criminalization and punishment in Beale Street might be understood. Baldwin's witnessing of the physical, psychological, and spiritual harm that the criminalized black body endures at the hands of the state shows up prominently in his nonfiction works as well. In his book-length essay, No Name in the Street, for instance, Baldwin's assessment of wounds that prison guards inflict on his former driver and bodyguard, Tony Maynard, a wrongfully incarcerated black man, is characteristically disturbing and damning. The book, From Slave Ship to Supermax. Tom Harmon here with you, Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Hello, I uh, wanted to, uh, I know that you've uh, been covering the uh, situation in Afghanistan, uh, understandably so, all week. And I had a comment uh, I wanted to make about that, Tom. You know, since World War II, uh, I think it's arguable that the United States has, quote unquote, won any war. First of all, uh, the American people, so to speak, are never told what that victory should look like. Uh, certainly can't claim victory in Iraq. I mean, Iran has more influence there than it ever has. Can't claim victory in Vietnam. Uh, can't claim victory in North Korea. Certainly can't claim victory in Afghanistan. So I think that until the United States rids itself of this penchant for violence, and I really think that's the root of it. If you take violence out of the equation, the United States really has accomplished nothing. Not even domestically does it accomplish things without violence. And I think that's really uh, where the American people have to do some soul searching. Because we no longer live in a society or world where you can go around beating up people and taking their things. It, it, it's, it's just the dynamics aren't there anymore. Yeah. And lastly, I wanted to say, if I could, Tom, as all of this talk of Afghanistan has swirled around all week long and people are pontificating on a place that most of them can't even find on a map, 1,800 miles away in Haiti, I have almost 2,000 black men, women, and children who have died, and I've heard nothing about it. And that, that, I think the silence there is deafening. Yeah, Kenyatta. It is a crisis in our own hemisphere. And the U.S. military, the Biden administration, just dispatched a number of planes, and there's a ship on its way to Haiti to try to deal with, to help deal with that situation. But uh, spot on on everything you said, and uh, and thank you very much for it. Don in Chicago, or Dan, excuse me, in Chicago. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind? Talking about the Afghanistan situation, uh, I always thought the United States didn't negotiate with uh, terrorists, you know, like Trump and Pompeo. <laughs> Before did. Trump, we didn't. And, and then another thing, if Trump uh, rescinded our uh, agreement in the Paris Accords, couldn't Biden have just said, you know, listen, uh, Trump is, was not, uh, he's not all there mentally, and so we, uh, we're going to have to go back on that uh, arrangement. But see, that raises the question, and this is what Kenyatta was just talking about. You know, we, we have not had a war since World War II. What we've had is a series of police actions using sketchy things like this authorization to use military force, the AUMF, that really needs to be nuked. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, we did this in Libya, we did this in, in Iraq, we did this in Afghanistan, we did this in Korea with the so-called police action Harry Truman did. Uh, we did it, obviously, in Vietnam. 
Um, every single one of those were uh, misadventures, I'd say, at the very least. In fact, Harry Truman's screw-up in, in Korea is what led to the Republicans taking the White House in 1952 with Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, it, so it, it's, and Eisenhower, a Republican, campaigned on, uh, it was, I, the, you, you can see the ad on YouTube these days, uh, it was this elephant marching across, a cartoon of an elephant marching across a stage, a theater stage, you know, with the curtains and everything, with a big drum, those big drums that you put in front of you, you know, for marching bands, yeah. beating the drum, and the drum had the word peace on it, and the voiceover, it says, vote for Eisenhower, vote for peace. That's what won the presidential election in 1952, because people were so sick and tired of the damn Korean War, which was not a declared war, the Korean police action, and it lost Harry Truman that election, um, or that re-election. And then, and then you've got you know, the Vietnam War that LBJ really got us into, another Democrat. I mean, it's, 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 this, is, this used to be my father's rant, right? You know, these Democrats and their wars. Um, and, and, and then we've got, you know, uh, now this was George W. Bush got us into Afghanistan and Iraq. So I guess the tables have you know, balanced now, or the scales have balanced. But uh, in every single one of these cases, and, and a whole bunch of the smaller ones, you know, Ronald Reagan using this to invade Grenada as part of his reelection campaign for, two, for uh, 1984. Um, it, the, every single one of these efforts has been, in my opinion, unconstitutional. The Constitution says only Congress can declare war. And when Congress declares a war, they make it very clear exactly who, who is the, the, uh, the recipient of that war and how that war, you know, what it will look like when that war is over. And we have not been doing that, you know, again, as Kenyatta pointed out, and it's, it's just nuts. It is just a complete nuts. It's just completely nuts. Dan, thank you for the call. Rick in Queen Creek, Arizona. Hey, Rick, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I want to subtitle your today's show as the Great Republican Bear Trap Show. Okay, <laughs> yeah, from, from uh, Jude Winitsky to uh, Afghanistan, huh? Yeah, I mean, let's go back and remember the last intelligent individual that worked in the Trump administration was Rex Tillerson. And he decided he couldn't put up with it anymore and left out, uh, you know, claiming the man to be a moron. Right. And I believe that's true. I don't think he has the intelligence some people are giving him. His advisors have always been afraid of Joe Biden because of the Barack Obama administration and the, and the landslide elections. Mm -hmm. Well, the first one, not the second one. But anyway, uh, you know, you can tell because immediate before Joe had, Uncle Joe had even thrown his hat in the ring, um, the Ukraine scandal starts, and he gets impeached, and then you have this huge bailout from the White House of people going, oh, no, we can't hang around for this. And so now you've got the real Republican politicians stepping in, and I'm thinking they're the ones who engineered this uh, Afghanistan they are all over the media. These, these people who were formerly in the Bush administration, they're on CNN and MSNBC all the time, or who were cheerleaders for the Bush administration. It's like they knew it. They knew it was coming. And uh, I, like I said before, I'm a retired Air Force brat, and when I heard that they had closed, he had closed 10 air bases, I knew it smelled. It passed the, yeah. the smell test. And that was a year ago. Yeah. That Republican, you know, debacle. And then the date is after the election. Right. Uh -uh. Right. Yeah. 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 It, was, it was as if he knew, you know, uh, exactly what was going to happen. Rick, thank you. Uh, very well said. Martin in Seattle. Hey, Martin, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I just wanted to maybe play devil's advocate a little bit. And let's just assume that Joe Biden, you know, knew that this whole thing would, could go south. And had a very good chance of it. Um, Which now, is what he told he George happen? Stephanopoulos, by the way. He said, I don't see any way to get out that's not disorderly. Right. I mean, and of course, Biden said that he didn't think it would happen. He said there was a remote, it was very remote. But I, You're right. I can't believe yeah. that. Yeah, we got we so, had a very mixed message. So, this is why I was, you know, the day before no, yesterday, saying, I was saying Anthony no. Blinken, you know, heads need to roll. So we know that, let's just say that Joe Biden knew this could go south. It seems pretty obvious. Everybody else knows. But so why would he have let it happen? Oh, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you've got, a, you've got a, a, a tooth that has reached the point where the decay and the rot has, has gotten so bad you've got to pull the tooth out. Well, it's going to hurt like hell when you pull that tooth out. 
But you yeah, got to do it. Um, so you would think that this is a long-term plan? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we, yeah, got, we had to we get out of Afghanistan. Term. We're going to have to get out of Iraq next. And, and, and right. it's like, you know, these two wars that George W. Bush lied us into. I, you know, I, I saw this meme on uh, Twitter that, uh, uh, you know, somebody that I follow on Twitter was posting. You know, uh, it was a picture of George W. Bush. And he was like, I lied you guys into a 20-year-long war. And, and you, you suckers, you morons, are, are arguing about who's responsible for, the, for the, the death and destruction. Is it Biden or is it Trump? Ha, ha, ha says George W. Bush. I mean, let's let's be sure that we understand where the blame lies in this, who actually got us into this war. And George W. Bush is sitting around pontificating now about whether Biden is doing this correctly. What the hell? LBJ is still remembered as the guy who gave us the Vietnam War, even though Jerry Ford ended it. I hope that history records this as George W. Bush's war, not as Joe Biden's. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. George in Santee, California. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? Thanks for yeah, watching thanks, Free Speech. Thanks for taking my call. I question the level of danger that these people were evacuating from Afghanistan are in. And here's why. You know, supposedly, I guess we had 300,000 Afghan soldiers that we were paying to actually shoot at the Taliban. Right. And all they had to do was lay down their arms and swear allegiance to the Taliban. If they're not in danger... How much danger could these people be in? Those soldiers were Afghan nationals who were working for an Afghan government that was one step removed from the United States. The Afghan government, the, the, the uh, Ghani government, was taking money from us. We, we provided 80% of their revenue and thus was paying those, those soldiers. But, but I think that there's, it, it, not just in the mind of the Taliban, uh, you know, I think probably generally people would draw a distinction between you know, your average grunt, the guy on the ground. Or, for example, you know, the American soldiers in Vietnam. I mean, you know, they, they were not responsible for Lyndon Johnson's policies or Richard Nixon's policies. Um, so they draw a line, they, 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 they draw a distinction between the people who were just, you know, trying to provide for their families by taking a job in the military versus the people who actually integrated themselves into the U.S. military by being translators or by, by being technicians or by being scouts or, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, job categories where people were actually working day to day with the U.S. military. Um, uh, you know, in, in when those, those are the people that are being viewed as turncoats, uh, you know, as, as uh, quislings was the, the old phrase, you know, after the Norwegian uh, collaborator with the, with the Nazis. And, uh, and I, you know, we should have seen this coming. Well, apparently we did see it coming. We just didn't, in my opinion, we didn't respond anywhere near fast enough. And we put way too many restrictions on how do we identify who these people are. Make sense, George? Well, I know that when it comes to the wars, the lies never stop. Yeah. And some of this might be created just to give a picture of uh, chaos just for the optics of it. Well, it could be. I mean, you know, what's, what's going to happen is the same thing that's happening on our southern border, that you've got some people who are legitimate, you know, who have a legitimate claim to get out of Iraq because they worked with us and for us. Then you've got a lot of people who are looking at or Afghanistan, excuse me. And then you've got a lot of people who are looking at just life in Afghanistan under the Taliban and thinking this is going to suck. Our country's going to go back to being, you know, the, the poorest country in the world. It's going to be a hellhole. My kids won't be able to go to school. Um, you know, it's just going to be terrible. So I'm going to try and get on one of those airplanes and get to the United States and let them sort it out later. And so, you know, the, 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 the horrible conundrum that the State Department was facing, that Anthony Blinken was facing, and I'll give him this, I'll, I'll cut him this amount of slack, was how do you make the distinction between people who actually their lives are in, at risk because they directly worked with us 
in ways that that were viewed as essentially traitorous by by to, to the Taliban and other you know people in Afghanistan versus those people who are simply trying to get to the United States because they don't want to stay in a country that's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And you know they came up. The State Department had this system with these visas, where you had to prove that you actually worked for somebody, a contractor, or the Army, or the Navy, or the Marine Corps, or whatever. And and it just became cumbersome and slow. And and it was the main reason why you know Biden moved back the the departure date from May to August. But it was it didn't work like it was supposed to. And and frankly, I think that our our State Department deserves some criticism for that. Hopefully, they'll clean this up. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, boy, what a day, huh? Talking about what's going on here. Um, Don in Winsboro, South Carolina. Hey, Don, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, Tom, good to talk to you again. I'm listening to you and other programs, and they're talking about how you were. You just mentioned that LBJ is like the owner of getting us into Vietnam. Right. But I, I was a teenager in the 60s, and I remember JFK, and I Googled it. It said in 1961, JFK authorized 500 support troops, special forces into yeah. Vietnam. Yeah, they called them advisors. Okay, well, to me, the, I don't know, maybe even Eisenhower had something to do with putting some people in Vietnam. But I think if it started in 61 with Kennedy, and it went on until uh, Kennedy was assassinated, and uh, it, I, I, just, I just don't give the whole ownership to LBJ. Yeah. Well, you know, Kennedy made us a partisan in that war. You're absolutely right. We, we, we took sides in a civil war which was a mistake. But it was Lyndon Johnson, it was after the assassination of John Kennedy, um, uh, Harry and Ricky, and Ricky Ruiz Williams, who was one of the leaders of the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, and, and worked with Bobby Kennedy to get, to get uh, the uh, essentially hostages, the soldiers out of Cuba that had participated in that. Um, he, you know, he, he had to ransom them out. We, we paid the Castro government a million bucks or more and um, uh, Harry worked with Bobby very, very closely. And Harry told me the story. They, they had the number three guy in Cuba, who was uh, uh, Ernesto, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. It wasn't Ernesto, it was Juan, Juan Almeida. He was the head of the Cuban military, um, and uh, you know the head of the army. And he had worked out a deal with Harry, with Harry himself, Harry was a Cuban national. He worked out this deal with Harry on behalf of Bobby Kennedy that if we could get a team into Cuba to assassinate Castro, then Almeida would take over the country on behalf of the United States and, and, and you know, basically turn Cuba back over to the U.S. So after the assassination of John Kennedy, while they still thought, Lyndon Johnson still believed there was a very good chance that Castro was behind killing Kennedy, um, when that happened, Harry and Bobby went into LBJ's office and said, we've got Almeida in Cuba. 
he is ready for us to assassinate Castro and invade Cuba, and he will assist. And we would like you to say yes. And LBJ exploit. And Harry told me this story personally. I was sitting in a in a restaurant in in Golden, Colorado, uh, you know, drinking whiskey with Harry when he told me this story. And and uh, LBJ just exploded and said, "I don't want to hear another word about those G, those damn Cubans." And I'm up to my eyeballs in these effing Cubans. And he just, you know, just went nuts about it because, you know, again, he thought that the Cubans had something to do with killing Kennedy and that it was blowback for, for the Bay of Pigs invasion. And, and he said, I'm going to make my stand against communism as far the hell away from this country as I can get. I'm going to do it in Vietnam. And that was, you know, assuming that Harry was telling me the truth, and I have no reason to believe he wasn't, and events certainly lined up around that. I think that that was the thing. You know, the, if you were going to run for re-election in the United States in the 1960s, you had to prove your anti-communist credentials, and uh, you know it was just a it was a requirement. And uh, you know, both Republicans and Democrats, although it was like the the the, the golden calf for Republicans, and Democrats were kind of being dragged along behind on it. And uh, I, you know, so to the best of my knowledge, that's that that is what started our you know, turning us from being a partisan in Vietnam under Kennedy into being an active participant in Vietnam under LBJ. And, uh, you know, it, it was, as we know now, it was a disaster. So Okay, well, thank you, Tom. I enjoy talking with you, and I appreciate you and your staff and crew and all the good work you do. Thank you, Don. Thank you for your kind words. Milt in Ireland, Michigan. Hey, Milt, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, I just had a question. You had Richard Wolf on uh, kind of discussing the financial operation of our government mm -hmm. under a democracy. And my question is, how detrimental would the same operation financially of our government be under an autocracy? I don't. I mean, I know the difference between a democracy and autocracy, but I don't really understand your question. Would, would would the 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 financial let's say uh, aid to uh, let's say food stamps um, uh, financial aid to uh, low income people um, just when just Hitler took operation. over Germany he not only expanded the social safety net in Germany the social welfare program in you know strengthened their single payer health care system. But he also start, kick-started German industry. He, he, you know, he, he developed the Volkswagen, the people's wagon, the people's car, and built the, the German Autobahn. Uh, and, and the people loved him for it. By 1937, he was the most popular politician in the world. He was on the cover of Time magazine. So, you know, and he was a complete autocrat. So autocracy versus democracy, that's not what defines whether an economy works or not. It's whether the government's making the correct decisions. Okay? Right. I was yeah. just curious. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you, Milton. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Book Club. Today we're reading from Point to Point Navigation, a memoir by Gore Vidal. This is from the last two chapters, and we're reading from page 258. In 1961, a new president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, was inaugurated at the age of 43. With him, a new generation had taken the crown from the older generation as represented by General Eisenhower. There was triumphant talk of a new frontier, presumably to be crossed by all of us into a bright new land where the only shadow that marred the prospect was that of the hideous, murderous specter of international communism centered upon the Soviet Union, against whom JFK had sworn to bear any burden to ensure the ultimate victory of freedom, liberty, and so on. But early on, starting in 1959, under the general direction of then-Vice President Richard Nixon, who had many interesting Cuban mob connections, Yes, B.B. Rebozo, his mysterious friend, was also linked not only to mobsters, but to the Cuban dictator Batista, who had been overthrown by Fidel Castro, to the annoyance of the mob, an annoyance that turned to fury when Castro shut down, if only briefly, the mafia-run Havana casinos. Elements of the CIA were soon attempting to murder Castro, who, like all Nixon enemies, was, if not yet a communist, worst a communist dupe. The presidential election of 1960 was a close one, fought by Nixon and John Kennedy, 
an attractive Massachusetts senator whose father had, ironically, dealings with many mobsters during the pre-World War II period, as well as at the time of the prohibition of alcohol. The late film producer Ray Stark told me how, during the short presidency of JFK, Joe Kennedy and Frank Costello, the retired New York mob overlord, would often have dinner at Kennedy's Central Park South apartment and rehash old crimes, often in the country of a retired teamster who gave great massages. Joe's mob connections were useful to Jack in the 1960 election and could easily have saved JFK's life in 1963 had Bobby Kennedy, in the interest of building himself up in the public eyes, not started arresting important mobsters, particularly in the so-called Appalachian Mob Conference bust, where they had all come together to confer about the secession of the leadership of the New York mob. I've long since forgotten how I first heard of the plot to kill JFK, while I had no idea at all of the Kennedy brothers' plot to kill Castro on December 1st, 1963, until I read a recent book by Lamar Waldron and Tom Hartman called Ultimate Sacrifice. It was assumed that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62 had sufficiently alarmed JFK and Castro's mentor Khrushchev so that they jointly backed down, putting an end, so everyone thought, to such dangerous adventures. JFK had pledged not to invade Cuba if Castro would allow inspections of any remaining missiles on the island. Since Castro did not cooperate, JFK then regarded his pledge as inoperative. In the spring of 1963, according to Ultimate Sacrifice, more a literal than an ironic title, John and, quote, John and Robert Kennedy started laying the groundwork for a coup against Fidel Castro that would eventually be set for what they called C-Day, December 1st, 1963. Bobby, like Nixon before him, was in charge of what would be the most secretive operation of its sort in our history. Since the CIA had, in the eyes of the Kennedys, botched the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, the Department of Defense was to be in charge of this adventure, which would first engage mob hitmen to assassinate Castro and then replace Castro with a provisional government that would implore the United States to come to its aid and restore order. Ours is a society riddled with plots of every kind, from, let's say, one to bribe certain members of Congress to cheat Indians off of their casino money, to the financing often secretly of numerous presidential elections, while simultaneously great companies like Enron cheat customers, stockholders, and employees. Yet everyone who draws attention to all of this corruption is quickly denounced as a conspiracy theorist who means to undo the great fiction that anything truly wicked, at least in the murder line, must be the work of a solitary lone nut who is simply evil. Hence the setting up of Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone crazed killer of JFK, Despite his own brief but presumably accurate statement after his Dallas arrest, I'm the patsy. Then, as planned, his being gunned down by Jack Ruby, a fellow CIA asset. Oswald, as lone killer, for no reason at all, and, and addled Ruby, a one-time Chicago mobster who claimed to be deeply worried about the stress all this must be causing the widow Kennedy. And he goes on in Chapter 55. Ultimate Sacrifice describes how the Kennedy C-Day plan was penetrated by three mafia godfathers, Carlos Marcello, New Orleans, Santo Traficante, Tampa, Florida, and Johnny Roselli out of Chicago. All three were being vigorously pursued by Attorney General Robert Kennedy, along with a dozen of their associates, of whom six were also working on the Castro murder case. The crime bosses then used parts of the C-Plan, a.k.a. AM World, to arrange JFK's assassination in a way that would prevent a thorough government investigation. In order to protect the coup plan, its participants, as well as, naturally, national security by invoking the secrecy surrounding the C-Plan. The mob bosses targeted JFK twice before Dallas, once in Chicago on November 2nd, JFK called off his motorcade, and then in Tampa on November 18th, he survived unscathed. Ultimate Sacrifice reveals and details why Robert Kennedy later told several close associates the name of the godfather, Carlos Marcello, who had ordered his brother killed. But he couldn't do anything about it for fear the Soviets might go to war. Ironic and tragic action. I recalled when over the years I'd asked why that what happened at Dallas happened, I'd answer because Bobby had broken a truce made with a mob by Joe Kennedy in 1960. The book Point to Point Navigation by Gore Vidal. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you, uh, Jeff, in Manchester, New Hampshire. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? Hey. <clears throat> One thing that's been on my mind about the uh, evacuation of Afghanistan is the fact that at first, you know, when we went in there and we captured it, you know, with the Northern Alliance, the Afghans were liberated. They were happy when we were taking off their burqas. They loved us. And then all of a sudden, Bush decided that 
oh, Afghanistan doesn't have any oil. Let's go into Iraq instead and say it's because of weapons of mass, I mean, destruction. Right. You're, you're absolutely right, Jeff. And in fact, uh, one of the newsletters I subscribed to, I think it might have been Eric Bullard's, was talking about how the collapse of our relationship or our ability to work with Afghanistan came about as a result of, of Bush pulling troops out of Afghanistan and moving them over to Iraq. And, uh, you know, because... Yeah, why... Go ahead. Yeah, why... why uh, as much as I was, I was against the Iraq war anyway, couldn't we have finished one war before we went into another? I mean, if we had just got, um, you know, followed through with what we started with at the beginning, Afghanistan would be a totally different place right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said, Jeff. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. Dave in Holland, Michigan. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, Tom. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to, uh, it was just interesting to watch or to hear that the the men in, and the, these quote-unquote soldiers fighting for their country were, you know, that fought for, for five minutes or less, didn't it seem like they really didn't have anything? Not only were they not I don't know who this they is you're talking but, about. But, but, but meaning the, the, the government forces that we trained for 20 years. Oh, in Afghanistan. Didn't it, right. seem, didn't, it, didn't it seem, I mean, did they not really have anything really to give up their lives for? Their lives aren't going to be a lot different. It's the women's rights that are really what's changed there, right? Men are just, this is, you know, it's, yeah. they've all... It's always been like well, and I suspect society. an awful lot of the Afghan men are just fine with women going back to the burqa and going back to the way exactly. things work. Exactly, exactly. And second, does anyone really with a straight face think that the previous administration would care one lick about the brown-skinned people from the, the crap-hole countries? Right. Like, I mean, they're probably flipping over in their living rooms right now thinking there might be anybody who are going to bring into the country from Afghanistan, save them or not. Right. Anyway, well, we've already got, you know, the, the, the two the two top hosts on, uh, or two of the three top hosts on Fox News last night going off on, you know, basically here comes the brown-skinned invasion, here comes the great replacement, um, and it's it's amazing. It's terrible. It, it, it really it's is. Some. Dave, thank you. Appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Joan in Nashville, Tennessee. Joan, your thoughts? Yes, Tom, I was thinking about the uh, fear of white people being replaced by people of color. And uh, I'm thinking that it isn't just uh, people of color coming into this country. It's really uh, white people's fear of genetic annihilation because whiteness is a biological recessive trait. And if you notice that when white people procreate with people of color, the uh, product of that uh, union usually has more of the features, including sometimes the skin color of the parent of color. So white people, Really do really do have a fear, a genuine fear of being replaced. Yeah. Because if they ever stop aggressing against people of color, and let nature take its course, then over a century or two, or a generation or two, white people will no longer exist in their present state. At least as white people, and I, I completely agree right. with you, Joan. And that's why this whole definition of whiteness thing at law and at culture, which we really got a huge boost in the 1640s here in the United States when Virginia, but from 1640 to 1720, Virginia changed all these laws about what whiteness meant to try to empower basically poor white people and create a, a, a cultural wall against the, the people who are being brought here in, in chains you know, to, to work in plantations. Um, you know, we invented whiteness. And it's a cultural construct, and, and, and it's time for it to disintegrate, basically. Well, what do you think if white people were able to actually admit that and voice that and deal with the uh, anxieties that come with that? I, I don't think people of color, and I know black people, 
don't want to do away with white people. We just want to live like white people live. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you. And I think that that's the subtext of the whole great replacement theory. The, you know, the, the, you see these white uh, supremacist militias out there running around with their guns freaking out. What they're expressing is fear. And I think you really put your finger on it, Joan. Joan, thank you very much for the call. I, uh, we're out of time here. Thank you. We'll be right back. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.